Um, hello, everyone. Welcome back. We are now here for this is episode four of season three. And we're so happy Becca and I are here with Bill Henson. Hey, Bill. Yeah. Hi, Josh. Hi, Becca. It's awesome hey, to be Bill. with you all and the whole Side B community and all the pastors that are, are tuning in as well. Probably some parents as well. <laughs> yes, it's been very interesting as the podcast has gone on. We have many pastors that listen. We have many loved ones um, as well as LGBT people. So it's a broad range. Yeah. So that's why we're so glad to have you on. For anyone yeah, that you. doesn't know Bill, Bill is the founder and director of Posture Shift, a missiological model uh, for LGBT inclusion and care within the church, and also the author of an amazing book, Guiding Families of LGBT Loved Ones, a book designed for uh, pastors, parents, and all who care. Um, so it is a great book. As many of you know, I have been on the team of Posture Shift. I swear to Posture Shift, anytime pastors write into the podcast, the first resource they get offered is posture shift. <laughs> and Josh is the author of Guiding Family Spanish. So yes. Josh has been extremely involved in the creation of all that we're doing today. And so Josh, just so appreciate you. Yeah, absolutely. It's been so much fun. I still remember going to the po my first posture shift in Boston and sitting you down at lunch, took you to lunch or dinner, I don't remember, and going, so what do you think of doing this in Spanish? <laughs> I always appreciate I, someone who asks that that actually speaks Spanish. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we, we've had so many people ask about lots of languages and I'm like, oh wow, could you help out? And I'm like, oh, well, I, I only speak English. I'm like, okay, get together a team of people with language skill and let's do it. Yes. Um, so like yeah. Josh knows this, but Guiding Families is uh, translated into Spanish and Swedish. Yes. And we actually awesome. have a print distribution agreement in Sweden. Um, that's been really exciting. We didn't have that on the radar. Seems like French would have come first or, you know, something like yeah. that. But we're really excited. And there's other folks that have expressed interest in other languages. And so if there are people out there with, you know, different language skills, uh, particularly um, uh, uh, Asian languages, um, you know, things like that. Uh, and if you want to really get involved in a translation project that will make a difference, uh, yeah. contact us. Yeah. It'd be great to have guiding families available in a lot of languages. That'd yeah, absolutely. It's, it's one of those books and why I love it and we wanted to translate it into Spanish is because because of the missiological perspective of posture shift, um, it's something that I th think translates very well to the church in many different areas. And like looking, you know, like we talked about, look, being able to investigate the terminology and the way you speak and all of these things in within the different cultures, you can still translate that missiological perspective because ultimately missiology is something the entire church around the yes. world is called to do. Yes. Um, so that's, right. that's great. Um, you and know, today we're going to oh, go ahead. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Along those lines, best practice missiology has been built by voices around the world. And even though it, it is made up of a lot of Western voices, a lot of those Western voices discovered best practice principles, why they were in faraway lands. 
So the yeah. thing about missiology is it does translate across every culture, every language, every people group around the world. And therefore, it is a bridge to the church learning to love LGBT people better all across the globe. Absolutely. And I can't wait for us to talk about that and so much more today. Um, Before we get into that, um, you know, we kind of as a conversation started, you know, Lent has started. And um, I'm actually really excited. This is my first time ever observing Lent. I've never observed Lent during my time of being a Christian. Um, But I wanted to see, do you guys observe Lent? If so, are you like, are you fasting? Like, what is that like for you? What, what, what about you two? Go ahead, Becca. Well, um, I am not this year and it is the first time in several years, but I have taken kind of the position of several, um, pastors and priests that I follow on Twitter that we have been in such an extended season of Lent to continue to focus on that and to look at simply repentance and making it, which I really like that. I read that from a priest last night that his Lent practice was to keep on keeping on for the next six weeks. And um, I really appreciated that, especially someone who comes from a little more of a legalistic background of, I want to do the thing that mm-hmm. it is actually more of a practice for me to give up control and of rule following. <laughs> so uh, to look at it like that for a fast for the next six weeks, it's to rest in a time mm-hmm. of repentance and, and looking forward to the resurrection. Oh, that's really good. I love that. Yeah. Beautiful. I love that. Yeah. My daughter, um, she heard from a pastor this week and he was basically saying, Hey, you, you, you can cut something off, something that hinders the flesh, or you can simply make a heart commitment. I'm going to make God's love so real that I actually uniquely love one person each day in some very, uh, powerful way. I just thought, wow, that's a really good way, um, to like, um, I mean, I believe in fasting and things like that, but I like the idea of turning the discipline into a positive prescriptive, if you will, mm-hmm. for living out the faith or knowing God deeper. Um, Josh, if there's one thing that I needed to give up in my life, um, do you know, is it obvious to you what that one thing would be? I... Josh on the hot don't, seat. Don't out me on too much, you know, but I'm just saying, like, at a surfacey level, but not. Can you Go ahead about? now, okay. and then I want to okay. see if I'm right. Okay, so this is a major confession, because um, this is the first time I'm going public with this uh, Starbucks strawberry refresher. I knew it! <laughs> I knew you knew it. <laughs> Seriously. I got to a point where it was dominating my life and meaning this all my life, I've always been into health. I've never taken, taken caffeine or anything. And about, uh, six, five years ago, a trans uh, kid that I was caring for, uh, worked at Starbucks and they brought in a Starbucks refresher cause they knew I don't like caffeine coffee products. And all of a sudden I took a sip of that drink and I thought, this is so amazing. And I went for another and another and probably thousands of drinks down the road. I literally was having 
health challenges. And I just said, mm. I have to get a hold of this. It's actually causing anxiety, all kinds of stuff. So literally, mm -hmm. I am uh, now 15 days into having my system clean. And honestly, it is freeing up. It There are soul impacts of stuff like that. Like my whole mm -hmm. being is more at peace and I'm able to rest like in the scriptures or in prayer more easily without churning inside. So, I mean, it is surfacey, but not. I mean, it's had huge, yeah. uh, a huge impact in uh, giving that up. But the confession was hard because I haven't known if I can actually follow through. So now I'm kind of putting it out there. Yeah, no, I, actually, very ironically, the thing I, you know, I've been learning more about the liturgical calendar as someone who's, yeah. even when I came to Christ, I never was involved in anything. I didn't even really know it. And, and also a lot more in Latin America, the liturgical calendar is a lot more connected to the mm -hmm. Catholic tradition rather than the Protestant yeah. tradition. And because of feelings in between those two traditions in Latin America, I've just never really been involved. Um, and I think it's really been getting involved in the side B community. We're obviously getting to know more Catholics, but also getting to know yes. Protestants that follow the liturgical calendar has been something that was like, wow, I can see if you go through it with intentionality and in a refreshing way, it can be so new and so like real. And so this has been something I've been wanting to observe the liturgical calendar for a while, but I've never really known where to start, especially when you're not part of a church that does it. Like, right. I don't have a leader that would tell me, oh, this is where you start. And so then as I saw Ash Wednesday coming up, I was like, okay, well, that's something I can do. I can do Lent. And um, mine is actually kind of similar. I actually decided to give up soda, um, which, as you said, it kind of seems like a surface thing. But I also like what you said of that, like, if we understand ourselves as holistic people, like our body mind and soul are all connected. Many times if you do something for your health, it's going to affect more than just yes. your physical health. It'll affect your spiritual health. And, and I've noticed that even too, like when, yeah, like when you feel healthier physically, many times that will allow an awakening even within your spiritual life too many times. And so, yeah, that part of it, like, I totally understand. I, I totally get like, oh, is this like a superficial fast? But I think in many ways, Especially as me, who's someone who's never really fasted, um, I was like, let me start small. <laughs> Let's start somewhere and we'll go from there. But I'm, I'm really excited for this time. Um, and sometimes it's weird to see how something that seems so shallow becomes such an ingrained part of your routine yes. that it has much more of an effect on your holistic health than you realize. It's but, true. Yeah, I did that. I think my second year teaching that I realized I had gotten a gross diet Mountain Dew habit. <laughs> like, I had one in my hand from the time I got out of bed till the time I went to bed. It was bad. And I was like, I have to stop this. Mm. And to realize how much of my habit of the day was built around like running to the fridge or doing this or doing that. And to say that habit has to stop it makes you think about everything else that you do during the day. So mm, yeah, anytime you get a chance to just change a habit, um, it makes you rethink how you have everything else ordered. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, in that, uh, uh, for me, that the addiction, it literally was a, it was like a soul comfort, yeah. not a good <laughs> one, by the way. I'm just saying it literally would per, almost become like a sense of security to me. Like, oh, I could be 
uh, uh, a, a complete person if I only have this, you know, this taste, this taste or the feel of that drink. You know, I mean, that's starting to be, you know, uh, uh, th there are addictive elements of that. And so if all of that's gone, oh, wow, then all of a sudden I can turn all that need for security back where it should be, like in right. uh, in God as my mm -hmm. Lord and my Savior, uh, to my family, um, and to investing in God and the, you know, important people in life. So, yeah, to have the freedom to do that, that's not a small thing. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, then I guess with that, we'll get into it. You know, um, Bill, the, the theme this season is identity and inclusion. Two words that I think go so well with posture shift and um, guiding families. So I guess to start, you know, we've talked a little bit about guiding families and posture shift. Can you give us a little bit more, anything more you would like to explain about what these two curriculums are? Sure. Our, our vision is simple, loving LGBT people in the church. Um, we're aiming to write a brand new church history where a decade down the road, I wish it could be today, but I think it'll take a minimum decade to prove to LGBT folks that the church could be the safest place to come, that Christians could be the safest place to come. And we can't do that if we don't have safe churches and safe homes. So Posture Shift is a missional training platform designed to make churches safer, guiding families a best practice care plan to make families safer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, everyone listening, it was definitely going to a posture shift, even as an LGBT person, it was, it was something that like really impacted my thinking on the church and, yeah. and sexuality and faith and really took a lot of things that I had been mulling over and going, how, how do these things fit together? And I remember going to a posture shift going, oh, that's how they fit together. Yeah. This is where the things all meet. And, um, yes. I, I think that there's just something so powerful that like many times we've talked on this podcast a lot about how um, like trying to talk about to people like pastors and church leaders about making churches safe for LGBT people. But I have found that t helping pastors understand a missiological understanding that we are all missionaries and we need to approach this as the LGBT um, community as a people group. And when you can help yeah. pastors get that understanding, I've seen so many times it'll click where explaining it in another way yes. never does. Yes. Josh, it seems so, uh, it seems so simple to think that, oh, surely God wants us to love people. Yeah. Oh, oh, surely a condition for having a sense of belonging among us is not based on, you know, some kind of, you know, like, get in the box here and there. Oh, you still got a toe outside the box. Sorry, you're out. You know, like instead of a posture of finding all these reasons to exclude, it seems like in general, we would want to find a way for to include people, to care for people well, to relate well and, and respectfully. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, for some reason, on matters of any kind of minority experience, whether it's race, ethnicity, language, or sexual and gender uh, minorities. Um, and even many women could say, yeah, and put us in there as well in terms of we know what it's like to experience mistreatment in the church, the very place where it should be safest. 
So if we handle that all at the human level, it seems like it'd be enough, but it's not. Oh, but mm-hmm. establish a missional bridge. All of a sudden, instead of, uh, like I always say, instead of blaming people for being gay or trans, how about we turn the mirror around and ask, are we good missionaries to all mm-hmm. people groups in our world, and particularly minority people groups? Um, because I, it doesn't matter how truthful we are. If, we're, if we've got all the truth in the world, but we don't want to win people to Christ as much as God does, we are dishonoring God. We are not living out biblical truth if we are not radically loving people where they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, such a huge part of just looking at things in the church and particularly from my um, church tradition, my background that being raised Southern Baptist, that idea of missions is like, that is the purpose of Christianity. You know, we are supposed to go out, we're supposed to make disciples and being able to look at it from that perspective that you help pastors and churches see really is a, a life changing perspective on being able to minister to a specific people group that often people in churches want to talk in a negative way about the gays or the homosexuals when they make statements like that they refer to us as this monolithic group of people but they don't ever consider that people group perspective on an outreach evangelistic missions-based perspective and being able to take that negative people grouping and to twist it back to use it for the glory of God is a huge part in being able to help people see that. Um, I do a group on Tuesday nights. um, Well, actually, we're moving it to Wednesdays now, but a group of uh, women who have just been broken in the traditional church, their hearts have been broken for minority people groups. And so we've talked about the history of the black church. We've talked about racism in America. And we spent all of January talking about sexual minorities in the church, how to Mm. minister, just no holds barred question time for them. And I always have a list um, when I'm talking about issues of sexuality of here ministries for people to be able to look at if your church needs more training, if you have individual families, And posture shift is always on that list. And when I was sharing with the group, um, you know, here are some organizations if you're looking for resources, curriculum, things like that. And one of the ladies in the group said, posture shift came to our church a few years ago, and it absolutely radically changed how I looked at gay and transgender people in my life and in my community that she had always looked at it as those are people that we need to help them get out of their sin. And she said, this perspective was, these are human beings created in the image of God who need to know Jesus. And being able to take it as a sin or a lifestyle that was something that needed to be defeated in a culture war, she saw that change of, these are people who need to be ministered to, this is a missions opportunity. And that perspective from culture war to missionary was transforming for her. So being able to hear that just from somebody kind of out in the wild was really encouraging to me for the work that y'all do and how that missiological key is so important to help people in the evangelical church understand what they get wrong and what they could be getting right very easily. Yeah, well said, Becca, and thank you for sharing that. That always means a lot to our team to hear that there's people that we don't even directly know 
right. that, that have been impacted. Uh, one of the one of the key principles in this is, you know, when you look at missionaries who go into a faraway land, they have to pretty much die to themselves in every area of their life, their comfort zone in all kinds of areas, cultures, the way people interact, the way people show respect, the way people communicate, what they eat, how they eat, when they eat, you know, how they work, everything can be different. So the missionary is, uh, being a missionary is not about coming up with a strategy of, of like reaching this other people, if you will. It's, it's coming up with this posture of honoring a people group. So a lot of people say, oh, if we come with a missional platform, it might be othering people. Oh, yeah, it very well could. So watch yourself. Uh, we've got to make sure that the missional approach is honoring people rather than othering them. And uh, that's one thing that we build into the teaching with a lot of discipline. So you have to keep saying, look, this isn't going to make you a hero. It's the bare minimum essential needed to even have any kind of credibility in, in having a relational connection with LGBT people. And exactly. uh, it's a posture of, it's much more a posture. It is a missionary posture, but it's a posture of listening, learning, laying down our life for rather than teaching and telling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, connected to all of that, and like I said, the, with the theme this year being identity inclusion, two words that, two things that often are addressed in posture shift, um, um, you know, that kind of connects to um, the posture shifts teaching on language and history, like especially like two things. And as I said, we have many pastors and church leaders um, that listen to the podcast. Can you share with us a little bit about how you approach topics like these? when talking with pastors? Sure. Uh, best practice missiology, you can't reach a people group if you don't reach them where they are. And if you're going to reach them where they are, you have to know something about them. If you don't know something about them, you can't have uh, uh, trust. If you can't have trust, you can't have proximity. Ultimately, every missionary is about uh, earning proximity with the different people groups of the world. And so best practice missiology calls for every missionary to understand the people group that they're seeking to reach, to understand their history, culture, and language. And in this context, it would mean specific LGBT history, um, culture, meaning what's it like to grow up LGBT in our world, and then language. And um, that has implications that are the same uh, no matter where someone lives. But then the history could look very different depending on where you are in the world. So, for example, easy for us in the West to talk about, as an example, the Holocaust. Um, and we, we, we often overlook the idea that ah, the Pulse shooting is now part of history, stacked on top of uh, AIDS uh, victims left in hospice centers alone, with families who had disowned them for them to die alone because they were disowned. They, they no longer existed to families. And the people did that in the name of God. People thought they were being godly by leaving their son to go die alone of AIDS. Um, if that's your family, I'm not shaming anyone. I'm simply saying God never asked anyone to disown their children. 
So all these things are connected, but easy for us to look at these things as if they're in the past. Meanwhile, even in our world today, the assault and murder rate against trans people has uh, really been a huge problem all across the globe in 2020 and into 2021. And if you're in some uh, uh, certain cultures or certain nations, you, you literally could be targeted for arrest merely by the way that you move or the way that you talk. It would be presumed that you are, quote unquote, a known homosexual, and therefore you would already be in violation of the law. Now, tying this together with how that kind of extreme judgment that could lead to someone's death, well, we meet someone gay in the church. Oftentimes, church leaders meet someone gay in the church, and there's a presumption. There's a presumption, oh, they must be living some horrible lifestyle. And it's not, there's not even an opportunity to actually make eye contact, to shake hands, to give a hug, to make an invitation to a dinner table, you know, to get to know someone, hear their story. Um, so history is really critical. And then language, uh, Josh, you know, in, in our minute, in Posture Shift, we live by certain ethics. And one of the ethics we live by is every word counts. You had to measure every word. And I would even say it's not so important that we have an opportunity to share even a single word besides simply asking someone else to share, to be able to share their story in our midst. In other words, part of the language is not just don't say this or say this, but it's about kind of like disciplining our own right to speak and elevating the right of others to speak. Oftentimes, Maybe young people who have overcome bullying, who have overcome threats of disownment in their family, and we're actually elevating the importance of their voice. Uh, and that may be the first time, even among their secular friends, it may be the first time that they've actually had the experience of having their voice elevated to a place of value and importance. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so important because I think sometimes in the church, especially when we see churches come out with statements about language and all of this stuff, language gets put many times to the place of almost theology, you know, like doctrine. And when we, and I think what you're saying is so important because like, if we can understand language as in a sense, a form of communication, if we are communicators of the gospel, if we are caretakers in ministry, then we need to speak the language of the people we are caring for. We need to right. like speak as we understand people that we're reaching or we're caring for or pastoring that the language they would understand. Um, I mean, some of that goes to the extreme of you're not going to come here to Columbia and start speaking English. Hate to break it to you. You're not going to be ministering to very many people. And that's obviously an extreme situation, but then also within the language, you have different ways of people speaking and you have to understand like language only works when the speaker and the hearer have a mutual understanding of the term which is being used. And if we, as you said, as agents of the gospel want to show others the love of Christ, we have to humble ourselves and speak the language with the meaning of the hearer who we are caring for, we are pastoring, we are reaching in whatever situation that is. Yeah, that's that right. So, so true. Grant tweeted something similar to that earlier this week. I was going to see if I could find it quickly because it really, 
it spoke um, to so much of that, just a reminder to pastors, to people that are speaking in churches. But it was essentially, if you use the word gay and you are only speaking about sexually active people, you have missed a huge portion of how even your congregation understands that word, that you are mm. doing damage to the people who are listening because you're making an assumption and you are passing on an assumption about gay people. And I mean, I was even raised with that thinking yeah. for so long was, well, I'm not gay because I'm not sleeping around. I'm not having sex with anybody. So I'm obviously not gay. And it, there was a delay in processing any issue of relationships and sexuality because that's how that word was always used. So understanding how language works in um, a culture is not giving in to culture. It's not, you know, the church watering down its message. It's much more um, like Paul in Acts 15 when he's talking at Mars Hill that he is using the language of the people that are there listening to help them understand their need for Christ. And being able to do that takes a lot of work on our part because we do have to get out of our comfort zones. We do have to learn a different culture, a different history, a different language. And that is a lot to ask of people who are very comfortable in their culture and their language and their history, because it's work that we have to do in order to be able to do that. Yeah, well said, Becca. You know, it's, you know what's so humbling and scary to me? One, one pastor who otherwise loves people well, who actually speaks in kind of a, maybe a sarcastic or a mocking way, maybe not even intending to, but nonetheless says something about transgenderism or the transgender agenda or something like that. That one statement, it may have been an unplanned accidental statement. That one statement ends up empowering an entire congregation of potentially hundreds of people to go into Facebook to go onto Twitter and to go into their neighborhood and community and entirely destroy the witness of Christ to, to gender minorities. That, yeah. in other words, we have a, we, there's power in our words, but that implies we have a huge responsibility before God to really be honoring in our language. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be, oh, now I'm so afraid I can't say anything. No, I don't accept that. That's an excuse. Yeah. No, we can learn. Oh, if you're in a marriage, you you know you have to learn language over and right. over and over again. And you know how like disrespectful language can damage uh, uh, even uh, just a friendship, you know, uh, among friends uh, or even among relatives. So just saying one single word or phrase can either empower people to go live out Christ in a very, very mm -hmm. sacrificial way where there can be an anointing of God on that witness, or it can totally destroy the, 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 the kingdom advancing in our world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, that's, it's so true. And, and, you know, as you said, there's the language part, there's the culture part, and there's the history part. And many times I think when we're, when we're talking about identity, but we're also, when we're talking about inclusion, um, it's so important when we want to include people, when we want to include a people group, we have to know about their experience, their history, their like all of this. And so um, it's so crazy, even for me, like as a person who has um, 
been in the LGBT community has like had all of these different experiences. It's very funny that I actually learned quite a bit of my own community's history in posture shift. And I think it's because we don't learn it. We don't, well, I mean, we don't learn it in church. We're definitely not, we don't even learn it really in, in culture. Like, you know, you don't learn it in school. And yet, um, there's so much that connects of the trauma, the historical trauma that has happened throughout history that we don't even realize, but then puts layers on the ability to have inclusion in our church today. Because now, like, I'll tell you, anytime, anytime I've ever had to go look for a new church to be a part of, there is a stress that just comes over automatically to go, I am really exhausted. I don't want to have to look for a church. I don't want to have to have these conversations all again. I'm worried. And then obviously it takes a while, even once you've had the conversations to make sure you feel like you can actually trust the church, even after they've said, yes, we love you and we care for you as an LGBT person there's still that part of like, yeah, but when's the other foot going to drop? Like, when is the other shoe going to drop? Like, because there's that, it may never have happened to you, but you know, people it's happened to, you know, the stories, you know, these things. And and this creates this understanding with an LGBT people. And for many times, I think for pastors, they don't see that because all they see is why don't you feel welcome here? Why don't you, why are you so worried? Um, where the history and the culture of that really help to under keep, give that understanding um, yeah. that is so needed in order for inclusion to really happen. Yes, well said. Um, Josh, We, I, I know you'll already cover the growing up LGBT with a lot of guests and, and, and we're just look, kind of looking at history and language, but just saying, if you look at the experience of a kid feeling different at an early age than being mistreated it's, and it's happened potentially day after day, week after week, month after month of a very young life. And then that kid gets some awareness of their own sexuality or their gender identity. And then they go on Google and they read the history of their people group. And they're not even thinking they're necessarily part of that people group yet. They're just looking, they're exploring, they're discovering, and they're finding out all the trauma that they've been experiencing in their everyday life. It's happened over and over and over and over and over again from people both near and far in their life, Mm -hmm. meaning risk, harm could come as much from within their family potentially as it could from the bully at school. That's a lot to overcome. That's trauma that's mapped into brain chemistry that kind of produces this thing in all of us, this anticipation of, ooh, will it be safe? I don't know, you know, why? Well, because so many times it has not been safe. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. Cause it's even, I, even this just happened this past week to me, um, was hearing of, uh, experience of an LGBT person in church where again, they, they were celibate. They believed in the traditional view of marriage, but simply because they used the term gay, um, they were kicked out of their position in church. They were like, not welcome, you know, in many ways. And it's so crazy how even as a person who's processed a lot of those things that have happened to me, I found a very like safe church home. Even that creates stress within my own church inclusion experience because then, and I think it sometimes also comes from that fact of another thing I know we talk a lot about imposter shift is 
um, silence can many times be interpreted as rejection. Um, so then even a church may not be saying anything, but if an LGBT person in that church where they're not mistreating this person, but there's nothing that's happening wrong, but then they see the rejection of other people. And then the question is, well, then how is my church reacting? And, and that can get then imprinted on it. Cause I know that cause that happens to me, even in a church that my pastor tells me, Josh, we love you. We love you even as a gay person. Like <laughs> even in that situation, seeing the experiences of others literally will create stress that then I have to sit down and work through and go, okay, no, like in my situation, I am, I am like loved, I'm included. And so it's hard. And, and these are things that I think even as an LGBT person are hard to understand in your own experience. Like, wait, what's happening right now in my own being. And then on top of that, many times for pastors, it's even harder because it's not happening to them. And yet then they're dealing with a LGBT person that randomly gets stressed within their situation or whatever. Um, even in a loving church, even a church that's trying to embody posture shift in that way. Yeah. People, pastors always say, when, when we, will we know that we've gotten there? And I say, oh, you'll know you've gotten there when you stop asking the question, have we gotten there? Yeah. Because in other words, because of this trauma mark, that fear, it could be resurfacing in an individual's life because of one thing that's said by one person in a life group. And you know your church is yeah. loving. Oh, except when it's not. And so there, for minority peoples of all kinds of backgrounds, they can often, in fact, it'll be the very people that would say the worst thing that will tend to gravitate right to them. <laughs> and, you know, like, gosh, if that isn't just so sad. So we always tell churches, look, make sure you have life groups that are highly, highly trained so that you know that if there are vulnerable people um, that you know that they can go to that group and they will be received right. well. You know, if you don't have that in place, you're, you're behind the curve because the, the gospel was, is not going to reach this next generation if we don't have highly, highly equipped and trained life groups that can operate without pastoral oversight. In other words, the messaging of the church is not just what the pastor says on Sunday. Right. If that's mm. bad, you know, in terms of disrespect toward LGBT people, the whole game's over, you know, but even if that is beautiful, but then you have life groups that don't operate that way um, because yeah. of a lack of understanding, a lack of training, then uh, you, you're not going to be able to reach the next generation. And it's yeah. not just LGBT folks. You're not going to reach the next generation. So exactly. because younger people are not going to sit in a life group and hear, you know, people talk disrespectfully about people of color or, um, or gender and sexual minorities. Yeah. 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 I think, and I think that really connects well to in episode two of this season, Darren Calhoun brought up like how, like you were saying, many times you'll find a church that wants to be loving, but they don't have a consistent policy. They don't have a consistent understanding of how to interact with these. And you might have two campuses that both think that they're inter they're interpreting the understanding of the pastor well, and yet they have two completely different, different. policies and understandings. Right. And one LGBT person in one campus is being treated one way or included one way. And then another LGBT person in another campus is being treated and included in a completely different <laughs> way. Yeah. And these things happen. And like a lot of that comes down to policy 
in, yeah. in many ways, having consistency. Um, and, you know, that kind of also connects to my next question, which was, you know, like in episode two of this season, we've talked a bit about already in the season about the issues of bait and switch. Um, in which churches are not being clear on their stance related to sexuality, marriage, and identity. Um, and many times it's not even a matter of trying to tell a church what stance to have, but simply being clear on the stance that they have, whatever that is. Um, and many queer people advocate um, churches putting their stance on, on sexuality on their website. We've also seen some of the damage that can be done, though, when churches like or denominations make statements um, that are published without participation with LGBT voices like the ACNA, the Anglican Church of yeah. North America statement that um, came out. Just wanted to get your approach. How do you deal with this with churches? Like in the issue of helping churches to not have bait and switch, to be clear on their um, their stance, like how do you interact, help churches on this topic? Yeah. Uh, you know, Rule number one, <laughs> you don't ever write a policy without training. Yeah. Um, in other words, it doesn't matter what you think you're saying. <laughs> if what you write doesn't actually uh, convey what LGBT people can hear, then, you know, then you can pat yourself on the back thinking, okay, we made things clear but all of a sudden you made things extremely unwelcome. So like, look, this is a no win situation. If you, if you don't put something on your website and an LGBT person comes and then they find out even on day one that you have a traditional belief to an LGBT person that could already represent bait and switch to them. Yeah. Uh, that's very challenging yet. My concern is I, I'm concerned about bait and switch for sure, but I have an equal or maybe even a greater concern about something that looks like theological agenda. So for every person that would interpret the absence of something on a website as bait and switch, other people, other LGBT people who see it on the website would automatically interpret it as hate. So it's a no win situation. So I'm, uh, I want, I don't want to mislead people, but this idea that, um, by the way, this plays into a broader uh, ideology in our culture right now, particularly our divisive culture, which is in a sense something along the lines of you either agree with me or you're no friend of mine. <laughs> you, you, you either agree with me or you don't love me, you know, or you don't respect me. All right. Now there's hurting people that are saying that, but there's people that are not hurting. They haven't had a lot of trauma in their life and they are still now saying that because of divisiveness. So I think the goal of the gospel is to prove that radical love exists across the belief gap. And so if we truly love people, do we really have to put out some statement that pre-declares what we believe on every sensitive matter so that anyone that possibly might get hurt or offended suddenly can just know, oh yeah, don't go to that place because they're hateful. Right. I think there's something greater to be won here. So one, if you feel compelled, I'm not saying there's a right answer one way or the other. What I'm saying is if you decide to put a statement on your website, you better have training to make sure 
and, and or, or consulting to make sure that that is an extremely thoughtful statement. And then if you don't put a statement on your website, and honestly, that's the that's the way that I lean, then then I'd say you have a tremendous responsibility to speak openly and honestly about your beliefs with a very beautiful posture. Uh, I'm going to brag about a church leader. Tim Lucas is senior pastor at Liquid Church, and I actually haven't I haven't even talked to Tim in maybe three years or something, but. This is a pastor who has a deep commitment to a traditional belief. His his idea that we need to faithfully honor God is, I mean, he has a deep sense of that uh, obligation. Oh, wow. You'd never know it from how vibrant he is in making eye contact and being genuinely curious about people and asking them honoring questions and putting his arms around people and making them feel welcome literally welcome in his church and like they will they, i know not every church can operate this way but literally they will baptize people based on profession of faith uh, because they're wanting to nourish people in their faith in christ rather than finding all kinds of reasons to chop at the roots of faith um, mm -hmm. so there's a there's just one church that is like yeah i don't feel like i have to pre-declare it on my website because we'll talk openly and honestly about it but I, but we'll also invite people into community. And one thing he did is he got out of the pulpit one day and said, hey, if you're LGBT, I know you're here. I just don't know you. I want to get to know you. Come to a coffee hour and we'll have some desserts this Tuesday night. I'd love to get to know you. And he didn't know how many people would come. Maybe, you know, like 10, 12, 13, 14 people, 82 people came. Wow. So... Um, like there are LGBT people in your church, and if you if you if you're safe to them, and if the gospel is real, yeah. then you might not have to pre-declare something that will scare a lot of other people away, and not even allow them to experience what you have to offer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that 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 every word counts idea. Um, you don't want to put words and a stand out there so that it prevents you from ever having an opportunity to build relationships. So there's, there really is a fine line in preventing that bait and switch of, oh, you're so welcome, you're so welcome, and then people get involved and go, but wait a minute, there are all these caveats. Yeah. That, that yeah. having that thoughtful training of if you are going to set up these requirements or this conversation with people who openly talk about being gay and celibate do you have the same type for single heterosexual people like are are you doing the same things treating people with equity and with respect and mutual honor um is such a huge part of that and that that ends up being where people get tripped up um, in conversations in church of, well, if you're not asking all of your single people this, you don't really need to be asking your gay congregants this either. So yeah, that's well um, um, just that thoughtfulness that you talked about is really the most important part of having somebody ask you tough questions to get mm -hmm. you thinking about things that you wouldn't even know to think about, again, because it's a different culture. You, yeah. you don't know that you need to ask those questions. So, yeah. I, I appreciate that. And get this, 
if you put some statement on your website, think of it, it's your statement of beliefs. And it's like what you think of God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, its inspiration, and all these very orthodox statements about a holistic faith. And suddenly you're going to put what you believe about gay, you know, gay people or gay sexuality on there. It's just like, it's just very odd. But the other thing is, if you ever decide that that's not working for you, because it's cutting off an open door for people to come and explore faith, guess what? The moment you take that off your website, you'll have the biggest backlash internally you've ever seen. Because mm-hmm. now people will think, oh my gosh, we're, we're sliding down into compromise because we're not even courageous enough to say what we believe. I don't think the goal is to teach the church that we are brave and bold to put our beliefs on our state on our website. I, I look to me that just smacks of pride. Um, we and we don't need more of that. We we need sincerity, um, and sincerity can overcome. Uh, it can navigate the frustration that some LGBT people might feel in feeling like there's a bait and switch. Like, let's say it's even two weeks later that a gay person finds out about a church having a traditional belief. I hope in that two weeks they've been so radically loved and that they are cared after that discovery, during that discovery, that like when if they run away, that there's a pastor reaching out to them saying, why don't you come have dinner with my family this weekend? Let's talk about how um, we hurt you. You know, like, I'm so sorry that happened. Um, that's the last thing we would want to happen. And we want you part of our church. And I want you, I, I would love for you to be with my family this weekend, come to dinner. You know, like, and in other words, if we're really, really committed, you know, we can navigate the feelings that people might have about bait and switch and really, really genuinely show that we love them. I know there are gay people that might decide, no, that's it. I can't be in a traditional church. I'm out of here. But what if that interaction meant that literally you established a friendship and now you all get together for dinner or for lunch every so often and the gospel can go forward outside of them you know being at your church why because you cared enough about people to foster relational trust yeah yeah i think it's one of those things where as you said it's a very delicate situation because like um i see sometimes like with written statements how because when you're talking about something that's so nuanced and so tension filled, written words can sometimes have a hard time um, really conveying a lot of that. And, mm-hmm. um, and especially if, again, and I think this should never happen, if like, as you said, if, if a statement is being written up and you haven't been trained or like no one in your church that it like directly affects is being involved, like then there's an issue. Like if, right. None, none of that. If it's all being written by your like straight male pastors that have not received any kind of training nor talked to any congregants that are LGBT, there is an, a big issue. Um, and I, I think there's also an ability here for churches to get creative because you do like if also at the same time, if a, if an LGBT person can go to your church for months on end and never know what your church believes on these issues or what, then there's, there's an issue because then that is an area of people going and I don't know what's happened. I don't know what this church believes, you know, and, and it's being hid. And if you have to, if you have to email this person to email this person, to email this person, to maybe get an answer, then, then there are issues. 
And so, and, and again, that brings up stress for LGBT people when they have to go through all of these hoops just to get a direct answer. And I think that there is ability for, um, for churches to be creative. Like one, I can't remember which church it is, but I saw this church. If I find it, I will put it out there. But I saw one church that I thought was really cool. They had, um, on, on their site, they had an area where was, um, it wasn't statements and it wasn't anything. They had sermons like they had their sermon area but then they had specific talks that they did on issues like racism and then sexuality and some of these things that they were like these are issues that are like in the culture like here are discussions that our church is having and you're you're welcome in there and then along with that connections in there to connect with the church to talk more like there are there are multiple different ways there's no one way of being able to do this, but I, I think it's the way of being able to engage with LGBT people to make sure that we're inviting into the conversation, that we are included in the conversation, and that there is a clear understanding that LGBT people aren't going to come down the road and be like, whoa, I had no idea that this is what my church believed. We had uh, a trans teenager <laughs> purchase Guiding Families. Now you understand if we would have known that the individual buying guiding families was that trans teen, we would have given that trans teen a free copy, but we didn't know it. But there was a lot of, um, you know, disrespectful talk going on at home about trans people. Um, the kid was really frustrated. The kid knew very much. I know my parents love me, but it's just like they're totally, you know, like we're not going to be part of that delusion of yours and all this stuff. And uh, so this kid ordered Guiding Families and read it. And uh, and this kid just took the book and just not in really an angry way, but just tossed it on the coffee table and just said, Mom and Dad, keep your beliefs and love me like this and we'll all be good. <laughs> And I just thought that kid gets it right. You know, like, you're like, wow, I might not be able to solve the belief gap, but that doesn't mean I'm not a valuable person. I deserve to be treated well by my family. And by the way, guess what? His family, they did change their posture and they began really, really deeply loving, um, loving their son. So, you know, there, there is tremendous opportunity for real progress to be made. And by the way, the progress, I want to brag about, uh, not in a prideful way, but about the church leaders that we're working with. The posture shift is well underway. The evangelical and broader community um, is becoming a safer place for LGBT people. And we see that happening every week. And it's so beautiful. I know that it may take some time for every LGBT person to like sense that or to believe it or to experience it. And so for that, I grieve, but I'm just saying the trajectory of where we're headed is a good one. And I just mm. want to make note of that. We know a lot of improvements That's are true. needed, but the trajectory is looking uh, wonderful. And I'm so thankful for that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important to understand because like, yeah, we, we talk a lot about where there is still room to grow and we need to continue talking about where there's still room to grow, but being able to have that hope, like, no, the trajectory is going like, there are more and more pastors, more and more church leaders that are seeing like, no, this is something we have to address. This is something that we have to talk about. This is something we have to do. And, um, you're right. Like it's, it's not going to be something that's going to be fixed in a year, um, five years, you know, whatever, but it, it, 
many more pastors are opening their eyes to the need for it and are now not only just seeing the need, but willing to do something, you know? And um, for our next question, you, you mentioned about the belief gap, like this teen, um, you know, and that is another thing I love that many times it's talk about imposter shift is like, you know, love across the belief gap. Um, many times, as you said, there are, there are times when, especially in our culture today with the divisiveness that's going on, that is this belief that I can't love you unless we completely agree on every single issue. Um, and so can you share a little bit about like, for instance, when you're talking with parents or pastors, like about how to love, even when there is, there is a belief like across the spectrum of belief, like we can mm -hmm. still love each other and that doesn't need to cut off relationship. Yeah. I, uh, one, one principle is show up, but don't, don't show up ready to talk, show up prepared to listen and to ask honoring questions. So Josh, one thing that our team has done, uh, and, and, and the pandemic kind of disrupted it in, uh, at least one year, um, hopefully not more years to come, but, uh, is we, we go to the pulse memorial uh every june 12th oh we don't go there to like announce our presence we don't go there to try to find some way to manipulate a spiritual conversation we we go there to remember and to cry and to comfort people that are crying and to give a gift and the gift that we give almost every year is the last time we were there our team we we brought a thousand uh little candles and i mean we had all these boxes of candles and it actually we had lgbt youth that were coming up and saying wow you all have a lot of candles oh wow can we help you arrange the candles it's like yes uh, we'd love to have you help us and literally they helped us spell out the word love all across the memorial wall like you know five or six times in letters that were like three feet tall you know uh, uh, laying down and um uh, so my point is, uh, 49 people get blown away, and 53 others injured, maybe 57, I forget. Um, and we can remember that. Yeah. And we can show up when people are grieving. You know, like, so like one aspect of this is like, like we, in other words, we get asked a lot, oh, how can I love? How can I say the words of love? I'm like, well, all the words of love that you could ever offer might not mean anything if you don't have street credibility of showing up. So like, for example, you want to communicate love, but you're near the gay community and there were five trans individuals murdered in your city in the last six months. Okay, I don't think you can love if you're not going in front of your pulpit and declaring, you know, like, like, we will be a refuge and shelter for trans people who are under assault in our world today. Violence against trans people is a crime and we will position ourselves in our community to make sure that we're working with other churches and other community leaders to ensure the protection of trans individuals. Mm -hmm. So my, my point is loving across the belief gap, it can't just be, oh, wow, I said some words that seem to have built some trust with people. Yeah, that's good. That's awesome. Uh, but street credibility, we got to live it out. 
like uh, in in our work, we have a justice initiatives fund. Right now, it has ten thousand dollars in it, re ready to go to paying for the living or scholarship expenses of young LGBT people that have been disowned by their family and have been like lost their funding to college. Yeah. Um, so my point is this, you got, we've got to show up, but we got to show up not with words. We got to show up with like Josh and Becca, like we've been talking about, you know, like understand the history, <laughs> understand the experience of growing up understand the way that language is often used disrespectfully. Um, there's a lot to overcome. So people have been torn down. People have been beaten down. They're worn down. Uh, we've got to build people up and comfort them and care for them, bind up their wounds, if you will. And uh, to do that, you got to show up. And, and, and uh, one way of showing up is to declare in a church from the top down, um, this community will not be a community where parents think it is godly to disown or reject your LGBT kids. Yes. One of the most powerful experiences uh, was a Southern Baptist church leader. And, and he came up to me after a posture shift and he said, Bill, you know, um, last time you were here, I did, I did exactly what you said we were thinking we've got to declare to our congregation, do not disown your kids. And I thought to myself, who would be the most dangerous leader on this staff to LGBT people? And he, this pastor said, I concluded that I would be the most dangerous. Why? Because I'm the executive pastor. I'm the guy who is like, they could just see me as only focused on the theology or only focused on the business side of the church. I decided I'll be the one to not just declare from the pulpit, but I'll go into every one of our youth groups and I'll say, this is going to be a safe and welcoming community for LGBT youth. Wow, so powerful. So when I get excited and passionate about the trajectory, it's because I see a lot of this being lived out in churches, but they're not going around bragging about it. They're just going out and just living it out, you know? So I'd say we have to show up. And if you, if you still have questions about what it means to show up, contact Josh and Becca or contact us at Posture Shift because we, that's what we do. We help churches think creatively about how can you show up. Mm, absolutely. This is, it's, it's so, so important. You know, one thing I was talking to someone recently about, um, for instance, you, you know, like last year we had a few cases in Posture Shift where you know, like you said, with the Justice Fund, we had young LGBT people that have been rejected from their families come to us and, and all this stuff. And I was talking to someone about this situation and they were saying, you know, but how can parents reject their child? And, and as you know, Bill, we, you know, in posture, we found that many times um, parents will do it because they think it's what their church leadership want yes. them to do. And the church leadership have may have never communicated that, but sometimes even that silence you're allowing for parents to interpret that silence however they feel it is to be interpreted. And so um, even if you're not saying it as a church pastor, you cannot, you can't know unless you say it clearly what you want, what parents should do that we do not believe any parent should reject their child. Um, we can't know what that parent is thinking their parent, their pastor would want them to do. 
Yep, exactly. People say often say, uh, what do you do for parents of LGBT kids? I always hear you talk about all this compassion for LGBT people, but what about the parents? And and um, obviously that's a, maybe a parent that is actually in a place where they're hurting, you know, so I understand mm-hmm. their frustration. But I say, well, we, we have guiding families and direct care calls and Zoom calls that we can help out. But I'll tell you what I do as a number one thing. I train church leaders from the top down. Because we can reach a few, we can reach thousands of parents every year, but there's thousands upon thousands of pastors that reach tens of thousands of parents every year. Yes, and they reach not only the parents of gay kids, they reach the parents of other kids, who like in other words, there could be parents who are loving their kid. I was on a call with a mom yesterday, and she's deeply loving her. Uh, trans uh, uh, female child, a teenager. Problem is, she's being shamed and blamed by others in her church community at the congregational mm-hmm. level. Um, uh, just not receiving any help at all. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, their family is extremely isolated uh, because of mistreatment that the parents are experiencing from other parents. So how can we best help parents? I guarantee you, train church leaders top down because once leaders get trained they're gonna know how serious this is and how much risk exists for mistreatment even in 2021 in their congregation and it's gonna be an opportunity for them to speak in a very powerful way against that to the entire congregation yeah awesome yeah and so often those fears of kind of filling in the silence however we see fit uh, comes from that idea of, well, if I say anything, if I show people love, I'm somehow agreeing with their choices or their lifestyle because going back to the language, we're assuming if someone says they're gay, that means they're sexually active or that they're outliving this imagined lifestyle. lifestyle. (laughs) That's right. The lifestyle. (laughs) And, um, when we, Becca, don't you see, Becca, don't you see Josh's shirt? I mean, he's just living the lifestyle. Oh, oh, wait, sorry. Me too. That's sorry. right. That's the lifestyle right there. <laughs> Golden Girls, I'm telling you, if that is the gay lifestyle. I'm all about it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we have to remember that um, Rachel Gilson and I recently had a conversation about this, that um, honoring someone's worth and dignity and value as a human does not mean that you align or you agree with their beliefs that we talk about that within family structure within school within any other type of relational um setup for human community that to honor and to respect someone because they are an image bearer of god does not mean that you agree with them it means that you honor them and you respect them Um, and what you may find is that you actually do agree with that person. That tends to be what happens is that we are desperately trying to say, no, we agree with you theologically, but all of the presuppositions about language prevent that agreement from even being recognized. Mm -hmm. Um, so really helping people remember and understand that treating a human being as a human being with worth and value does not mean that you are agreeing with them or heading down a slippery slope of liberalism. It means that you are respecting them as a fellow image bearer of God. And that's all it means. 
And if we can get back to that remembrance of the fact that humanity is what is foremost important as far as our connecting relationship, it's not following the law. It's not what we believe. It's not what denomination we're a part of or who we're attracted to. It's the fact that we are human beings and God says, love one another as I have loved you. Um, that very foundational understanding of love God and love one another would really help move this whole thing forward. It's not nearly as difficult as we make it out to be. Um, if we can start with that and then work on presuppositions and differences of opinion and language barriers and all of those things, just show yeah. love first and then work the rest of it out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So sometimes uh, uh, pastors will say, hey, how can we go into the gay community um, and, you know, like reach them, you know, like, well, if you if you haven't turned the uh, valve off the outflow of gay kids that are leaving the church, don't go into the gay community. Yeah. In other words, mm -hmm. always start at home, always start inside your church, yeah. build it up from there. And I'd say, oh probably spend a decade gaining experience before, you know, you'd think about going into the gay community. I don't want to put off missional work. You know, if there's a opportunity that you're invited to, or, or you see that there's some damage done to some buildings after a storm in the gay community and you're able to offer resources, go do that, you know, but I'm just saying we can't help the gay community uh, discover Christ if our own kids who are already in Christ are abandoning the faith because of mistreatment. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's like, I have said this multiple times, pastors, if you have more than a hundred people in your church, I am sure you have an LGBT person. <laughs> they are there. If you don't know if like, if a pastor has more than a hundred people, and even if they have less, but I'm just saying a hundred people, pretty sure you have at least one. Um, but like many times when pastors will tell me, oh, but I don't have anyone in my church. I'm like, well, you're, they're there. They just might not feel safe talking yet. And that's an issue that needs to be addressed before you go out and try and do more. Because if the people that are already in your church aren't even wanting, like don't even feel safe to talk about their situation, um, then that is an indicator of something being wrong. Absolutely. Right there. Yeah, uh, thank you so much, Bill, for joining us. Um, and this will not be the last time. We can't wait to have you on again, <laughs> for sure. That's right. Um, thank you all so much for the invite. It's been a joy. Yeah, absolutely. So for people that are listening, like pastors and parents who might want to learn more about Posture Shift or Guiding Families, where can they learn more? Um, what, where, where should they go? Sure. You can go to postureshift.com or guidingfamilies.com. Ultimately, the resources you can get at both sites are the same, uh, but particularly we have our first virtual intensive coming up uh, March 18th, and it requires that you watch a digital seminar before. All of that's available at PashaShift.com, um, and uh, you can learn about that March 18th event. We'd love to have you. Um, yes. And uh, thanks again, Josh and, Be and Becca, Absolutely. for having me. Uh, it's a joy to be here with you all. It's been a lot of fun Absolutely. too. Thanks, yeah, Bill. it's we been it. a lot of fun. And yeah, I just want to reemphasize for, especially for pastors, like I said, we've had a lot of pastors and please write into us. We want, we want to hear from you, but if you're a pastor and you're wanting to know how can I make my church safer, 
for um, LGBT people. This training in March, I totally recommend going and registering for it. It is absolutely worth it. Um, so definitely agreed. Yeah, thank you so much, Bill. And we Thanks. will talk to you again soon, for sure. All right, God bless you okay. all. Thank you.